You're listening to the Unsiloed Podcast with Greg LeBlanc, brought to you by alumni.fm. Unsiloed is a series of interdisciplinary conversations that inspire new ways of thinking about our world. So wherever you are today, enjoy today's episode, and here's your host, Greg LeBlanc. Welcome to Unsiloed. This is Greg LeBlanc, and I'm here today with Glenn Hubbard, who, in addition to being a professor of economics and finance at Columbia Business School, or should I say Columbia University Graduate School of Business, also the former dean of Columbia Business School, and also experience in policymaking, both at the Department of Treasury and the Council of Economic Advisors, and also the author of many books, not including the textbooks. He's co-authored a number of books. You've written a book called Aid Trap. That goes way back. Then there's this book called Balance that you co-authored about the economics of great powers. And most recently, You've got a book called The Wall and the Bridge, Fear and Opportunity in Disruptions Wake. Welcome, Glenn. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Now, when I think about the last two books, The Wall and the Bridge and Balance, The Economics of Great Powers, I think that both of them express some degree of concern, some degree of worry about contemporary American political economy. And if the last book was one concerned primarily with political factionalism and how it led to fiscal imbalances, I think the current book is really more worried about the impact of disruption. Disruption is something that, look, it's been going on since the days of Ludd. (laughs) You talk about the fictional Ludd in the book. But of course, it's happening faster and faster, one would argue, in today's world. And the two disruptions or the two drivers of disruption that you focus on are globalization and technological change. And both of these have winners and losers. We as economists, we we like to talk about Pareto improving moves where everyone's better off, and then these Caldor Hicks moves where the pie might be bigger. And the winners could potentially, in theory, compensate the losers, but they don't. And it's in those situations where you're going to have a lot of opposition to things that could be wealth enhancing. I think it was Arthur Oaken who said, look, there's efficiency and there's equity and let's just focus on the efficiency piece. Do you think economists just assume away the complications and the potential roadblocks that could arise as a result of what happens to the losers when there's economic change? Well, I do think we've fallen a bit into that trap and have for some time. It's a great question. I think a lot of the neoliberal thrust in the economics profession is, as you just mentioned, let's maximize efficiency and assume public policy will do all the right things to smooth out the edges. But what happens when it doesn't? And the issue that I try to confront in the book is one that came up in many conversations I had with my colleague, Ned Phelps, who's a Mm -hmm. Nobel laureate in economics and who's written very passionately about dynamism over time. Imagine in my hand, I had a coin and the head side of that coin is called growth. Now, who wouldn't be for that? Here's the problem. There's no modern theory of economic growth that doesn't entail a tail side of the coin, which is disruption. Every modern theory of growth has it. There's no such thing as growing a little Mm. bit each year smoothly and everybody's incrementally better off. That's not how economic growth happens. And we know that in the profession. Business people certainly know that. So here's the problem. If as a politician, you go around saying, I want to get rid of the disruption. You don't like technological change? It won't affect you. I'll make it go away. We'll have a robot tax. You don't like globalization? I'll make that go away. We won't have trade. We won't have immigration. You like 1955 better? I'll give you that back. Here's the problem. 
you'll get rid of growth at the same time. This is in essence what people like Deirdre McCloskey or Ned Phelps have been saying more subtly for years. What we've done as economists, I think, is take social support for the system as given, and that gives us this nice equity efficiency paradigm. But I don't think that's really accurate. I do, however, think optimistically there's a lot we could do to get that social support back, and that's what the book is really about. You argued that these walls seem to attract a substantial amount of political support. And the bridges are a little bit more difficult to generate support for. Think about the problem I just mentioned of the coin with two sides. There are only two ways to finesse that, walls and bridges. And what I mean by a wall is, it could be quite literally, we had a president recently who wanted to build a wall around the country. It could be literal. But more likely, it's metaphorical. It's trying to make change harder to happen. But another option is to build bridges. And a bridge, of course, takes you somewhere, and it brings you back. And so what I had in mind was a bridge that took you to the economy that is and will be, to make sure that everybody has the skills and opportunities to do that. And by a bridge on the way back, I mean putting people back in the boat if they fall out, what in econ speak we call social insurance. And I think there are ways we can make changes there. And by the way, America once did this beautifully. As I talked about in the book, we've had plenty of bridge policies. Abraham Lincoln's core economic policies, as he was prosecuting the war, were all about opportunity. Homestead Act, land-grant colleges, transcontinental railroad, Roosevelt's, Franklin D. Roosevelt's conception of the GI Bill. We've done this before and can do it again. Otherwise, we default to politicians, whether they're on the left or the right, talking about walls. But I used to teach business history, and one of the themes in the course was that business people are always looking for comfort. They always want to, like, build walls. We even use the term moat, right? A moat is, yep. right, something that protects you from the winds of competition. And politics is one way that you can build these walls or moats. You know, if business people have been trying to do this forever, why is it that their success in doing this rises and falls? And you could argue that when you're talking about the rise of empires, it's usually happening because vested interests are not very good at protecting themselves. And then when you see the decline in these empires, it's usually because the vested interests get pretty good at protecting themselves. Is that just a Mansur Olson story? It's definitely a Mansur Olson story. And I think the problem with vested interests, you could also relate it to George Stigler's theory of the regulatory state and special interests as well. I think for contemporary America, what it means is we're going to default to business people or policymakers choosing walls if we don't help secure a more dynamic economy for more people. The same economists or politicians who will speak of economic growth don't always speak at the same time about opportunity. And I think that's what's missing. That's the bridge that's missing. And the hard part is, unlike a wall that can fit on a bumper sticker, build the wall. Build the bridge isn't a bumper sticker. And what I've tried to do in the book is lay out fairly concrete policy ideas that aren't particularly on the left or the right. I've heard politicians on both sides say them that could articulate bridges for a modern American economy. You referred to the Caldor Hicks version of compensation. We don't literally want successful people writing checks to people who've been less successful. That's not what compensation means. What compensation means is broadly using the state to make sure that access to opportunity 
isn't limited. And that we're not doing as well as we should have. Why is that, though? Politics is also a marketplace, right? And so where the marketplace doesn't do a good job, we expect the political marketplace to do the work for us. And does that mean that there are transaction costs in this political marketplace that make it difficult for the winners to work out deals with the losers? Why isn't Congress the place where that happens? Or why isn't the political realm the place where these deals take place? It's a very interesting question. The classic theories in this regard would suggest that if people are better off from a policy incrementally for a large number of people, but losers are concentrated, it can be hard to notice yeah. that. And one of the things I talk about in the book, one of the favorite quotes I ever saw in economics actually came from the late Queen of England when she talked about the financial crisis. And I still remember this because I have so many friends at the London School of Economics. When the Queen showed up, I'm sure handbag, pearls, the whole Queen outfit, and asked those economists, why did nobody see it? My guess is the room got pretty quiet. And I think what the queen was asking is not too dissimilar from what you were just asking. How do you have such a major low-frequency event happen? And you all, who are supposedly so smart and so worthy, fail to notice it. I think there are lots of reasons that happened, but I think a good chunk of the answer to your question is unfortunately that elites, whether they sat in boardrooms, congressional halls, or dare I say the economics profession, weren't noticing. We were speaking more to people who won and not enough to people who lost and the anxiety that creates for individuals and for communities. So I think noticing is a big element mm -hmm. of it. I think it was your wife who said that there are economists and then there are real people. Right. And economists don't talk enough to real people. One of the things that I've enjoyed doing here at the school, Columbia Business School, we've done with several faculty, is take students on the road mm -hmm. to places in the heartland that have struggled, taking groups of students to Youngstown, Ohio, which is a metaphor I use in the book, and Decatur, Alabama. And the idea is not to look in, but to have a real conversation. What is going on? What happened? What could plug areas and people back in more? And I've never met a student who hasn't come back and I myself say the same thing, completely changed mm -hmm. by the experience. This is not about diagnosing something. It's about really understanding it because these losses are quite concentrated. And like many economists, I had the view that, well, mobility will just sort mm -hmm. that out. Right? If the opportunities aren't good in Youngstown, but they're good in Orlando or Nashville, people will go there. Well, that happens some, but it doesn't happen to the degree that many in the policy world seem to think it does. And so we do have to work harder at bringing opportunity to individuals and communities. And as I say, some of our greatest leaders, even going back to Lincoln, understood that mm -hmm. and used government more as a battering ram for opportunity than as a device for pensioning off losers. And I think that is something that we're missing today. This idea of traveling to, say, Youngstown, Ohio. We have at Berkeley a program for our MBA students where we'll travel to South Africa or we'll go to Argentina. <laughs> we call them seminars in international business. And the students love these things and they learn so much. And they're great. We have them too. They're fabulous. I wouldn't knock them. But when I was a dean, I lamented that if what we felt about understanding the diversity of experience of a business leader was having white wine and shrimp toast with somebody observationally equivalent to us, they just happen to be in London or Hong uh -huh. Kong or Singapore, then we're missing 
an awful lot. And I don't think as a serious matter, you could be a leader of a major American company without understanding these things. It's interesting, sometimes when I speak to groups of CEOs, I always ask them a question, how'd you grow up? And they generally answer, like me, fairly modestly in parts mm -hmm. of the country that you really probably haven't heard of. Then I ask them how the children grew up. Yeah. Completely different, in a bubble, not really seeing people. And this is a mistake we made and one that can be fixed. Going back to the Queen's question, if we want to make sure that we're on top of this, we have to get out there. People as diverse in their backgrounds as Abraham Lincoln, who truly was from modest means, and Franklin Roosevelt, who clearly was not, still manage to notice. Our leaders need to notice too. It seems like there's the question of inequality where we have much wider range of incomes, but it seems also that there's this cultural divide where people in the universities are becoming increasingly detached from the rest of the world. You're in New York. I'm in the Bay Area. I was interviewing Jeff Immelt recently, and GE had most of their operations in places like Cincinnati and in Tennessee and so forth. And particularly here in Silicon Valley, it's easy to forget that there's this entire country that is filled with people that don't do, say, tech. Is the self-referential inbreeding of academic economists in part to blame for a lack of awareness or empathy for the costs of economic growth? I think at one level, economists do get this. I always say to people, you know, when you took your freshman course in economics, I'm sure that the professor told you that technological change is good, globalization is good. But I'm also sure, pretty sure, that professor told you that not everybody's going to win. To your earlier point, mm -hmm. it's not a Pareto improvement. It's just an aggregate improvement. And yet, while economists say that over and over and over and over, we don't really do much checking on the compensation. You know, for the U.S., our actual public policy programs here, I refer to trade adjustment assistance in the book, are super small. In fact, I'm quite confident most people in the public don't even know they exist. Mm -hmm. And so we've really, I think, got to do much better. But I think there are things we can do. It's not everybody's going to be a software engineer or a finance professional to pick the two coasts. I think what it's going to be is an effort on education and training for jobs in a variety of areas and industries in the country. And to be more specific, one of the ideas I talk about in the book is a very large block grant for community colleges. Mm -hmm. They're really the foot soldiers of what we're talking about here, and not really Berkeley or Columbia, yeah. but community colleges around the country. The problem is they're woefully unfunded and we hear promises from some politicians about free tuition, but free tuition doesn't stand up any resources to actually get people to graduate from a community mm -hmm. college. Lincoln understood that, and the Congress understood that. The land-grant colleges were supply-side. They were building an element of education to prepare Americans to move from an agricultural economy to a manufacturing economy. We have a transition today. It's not agriculture to manufacturing. It's more into certain kinds of services. But we really need something like that. We also need, I think, a way to devolve our intellectual capital more in the country. There's a reason that we do basic research at a very small handful of great universities, and I wouldn't propose to change that. But we could be putting applied research centers all over the country mm -hmm. to disseminate ideas. We could be devolving many government structures away from the core areas of the country into other parts of the country. It's certainly not an idea unique to me. 
but it is something that I think could really help us spread the dissemination of ideas and spread productivity. Now, you had a parent who taught at a community college, and, and I, I think most people at the top universities are very oblivious to the role that community colleges play. But, you know, that's the bottom of the pyramid. And if you look at the resources that go there, they're pretty meager compared to what goes to... Well, they are. They're meager in two respects. One is states, many states, not all, but many states have cut the resources for community colleges relative to per student per year in, say, a four-year university in the state. That's an issue. The other is completion. Sometimes people talk about going to college, whether it's community college or a four-year baccalaureate institution. But of course, our studies in economics about the reward of college are about graduating Mm -hmm. from college. And it's even more true for the community college folks, some of whom go to the community college for a variety of even modest financial disruptions, can't complete it. And so there are a number of interventions that have been studied in randomized experiments on what works in getting people to complete college. We need to fund that and do it. So when I say block grant to support community college, I'm not talking about tuition as much as I am the resources that the college needs to bring education. And I think we're also seeing a realization in corporate America that, and even in some state and local governments, that a BA college credential doesn't have to be a roadblock to hiring somebody. Maybe other credentials, maybe a community college, maybe even a certificate in an area is good enough. In the Bay Area, there are a number of the tech firms that have funded that and done it themselves. I think that's all to the good in broadening opportunity. And I'm a little surprised that we don't have more political leaders step up to say that, because I think it's economically the right thing to do, but I also have a hunch it's politically quite wise. Yeah. The Biden administration recently has advanced this loan forgiveness program. And it seems like the dollar figures that you were talking about in the book are relatively modest in comparison with... Well, this is a funny story. When I worked on the community college block grant, it was with Austin Goolsby, who's a colleague and friend, and Melissa Carney. And when we're doing this, we came up with, can spare your listeners the details, but a 10-year program and two tranches with all kinds of measurement. And it would cost over 10 years about $300 billion. And I remember it was for an Aspen project, and I took it to Hank Paulson, who was the chair of the project, and he said, you guys are insane. Nobody is going to propose $300 billion over 10 years for a domestic program. Mm -hmm. And then along comes President Biden with loan forgiveness, much of the benefits of which aren't even going to people in need spending far more than that with a kind of jubilee flavor and screwing up the incentives that people face in going to college. So it's not that we don't have the resources to do big things. It's we're doing the wrong ones. There's probably a political economy story there. The main beneficiaries of that loan forgiveness program will be the very expensive universities, right? Well, that's the thing. People forget that the more money that is given for financial aid, as laudable as that is, encourages the most selective institutions, those who have a fixed number of seats, and everybody wants to go there, to simply raise their price Mm -hmm. to clear the market. That's not really standing up the resources. Great universities like Berkeley or Columbia, we're not the problem or the solution to what we're talking about here. So we need to focus on the kinds of institutions that are the Mm -hmm. solution and give them money. It's not to say Berkeley and Columbia aren't worthy. They clearly are, but not in this context. 
Well, apart from government funding, you'd think there'd be more private funding. You can't walk down Stanford campus without, I mean, every building has a name on it. Every bench has a name on it. Every classroom has a name on it. The private sector needs some galvanizing. So, for example, to give you a micro and a more macro story, at a very micro level, when I took a group of students to Decatur, Alabama, Nucor Steel had come to Alabama for reasons you might suspect, a regulatory climate and a tax climate that it preferred. It, however, found when it came, it didn't find workers with the skills mm -hmm. that it needed. And so it had to partner with community colleges, I assume partly because they were all nice people, but partly also out of purely business reasons. Those kinds of arrangements around the country are important. The more macro version of that story that I tell in the book is comparing Pittsburgh and Youngstown. Yep. So Pittsburgh did reinvent itself. They're hit with the same shocks. Pittsburgh, beginning even before Steele's demise in the United States in the 1970s, when the big integrated mills were replaced with mini mills and changes in technology, Pittsburgh city leaders, university presidents, Mellon Foundation, and others came together and said, we need to get on this. And they organized the private sector, along with the government, as far as I know, very little federal support. This could be repeated around the country, where there are also university presidents, local business leaders who can do this. I'm not saying there's a one-size-fits-all, but I am saying that business people do have a social responsibility here, and as well a private gain and responsibility for the right kind of workforce and public that they want for their firms. Now, I want to circle back to this issue of mobility, because this has puzzled me a bit. The amount of mobility that we have in America is dramatically less than what we had in earlier generations. And I think most people would be surprised by this, but my great-great-grandfather came from Ireland to Philadelphia, and then his son moved to Norfolk, Virginia, and then his son moved to New York, and then his son moved to Philadelphia, and then his son, me, I've moved to the Bay Area. And we've never settled down anywhere for a long period of time. Now, granted, most of those folks were college-educated, but what's happening here? I mean, when we think about West Virginia and Ohio and these towns with high unemployment rates and high drug addiction rates and so forth, why don't people just pick up and go? And during when the Dust Bowl hit Oklahoma, everybody just picked up and moved to Oakland, right? So why aren't people moving? I mean, here in the Bay Area, even right now with this weird fake recession, I don't know what it is, what's happening, there's help wanted signs everywhere. You can't, people, housekeepers, maids make $50 an hour in the Bay Area and nobody can find them. Why don't people pick up? And I mean, most menial labor is being done in the Bay Area by folks from Guatemala, you know, legal or illegal or Central America. And you don't see internal immigration. There was a study I think I read recently that showed that immigrants actually do better second generation than native-born Americans. But if you control for internal mobility, if an American moves, then they perform just as well as an immigrant. So is that a selection effect or is that a treatment effect or what's going on there? I think it's all of the above. To go back to a couple of things you said, when you look at the pathologies that people like Ann Case and Angus Deaton and others identified, that in sub-areas of our economy where shocks from principally technological change, sometimes globalization as well, have hit communities, you do see social pathologies emerge, which tells you that it can't be the case that it's just trivial to move, because why would I 
succumb to opioid addiction or alcohol addiction when I could have just moved. So something's going on. Now, I suspect that it's both a local effect and an other place effect. So when we have our Horace Greeley intuition in our head, go west, young man, yeah. I think we imagine that, you know, there's nothing for me here and gold over there. And they're both certain. And if that's the case, absolutely, I'll leave where there's nothing to go for gold. The problem is there's a lot of uncertainty. So picture me, I don't have a lot of general skills. I had skills to do particular jobs in a particular area. I don't have the general skills. I have a network here. It could be civic, it could be religious, it could be family. And now you're asking me to go over here where I might be able to get the skills. I might be able to get access to services. I might be able to get a community like mine, but I don't know. Now, economists would say, well, if that's the case, why don't you pay people to do that? So we do have some programs that pay people in the sense of giving a credit for people who go. But I think we need to do more of that, but at the same time acknowledge that many communities need aid themselves. Economists used to be very suspicious, and I would have put myself in that camp, that we ought to just take people to better places and forget places that aren't doing well. I don't think that's the right answer. And I think a number of economists have moved backward on that to find places that have structurally higher unemployment and maybe do things like block grants, changing the structure of the earned income tax credit program to favor such areas. I think there are things that we could do with policy around the margin, but it's a complicated problem. And I think while most economists have pivoted to understanding the new mobility, when I speak to policymakers, they still have Horace Greeley in their head. People just yeah. go somewhere else. It's just not happening. The explanation you offered, that would presumably also have been true 100 years ago. And it's also presumably true for those people who are leaving their homes in whether it be India or Central America. In fact, I would probably think that the lure of community was probably stronger then. Because today, these communities are so frayed and so depleted of social capital, that there's even less reason to stay behind today than there might have been 75 years ago, or there exists in, in, say, Central America. Well, that's true. But keep in mind, again, there's not the kind of general tradable skill. If I'm somebody trained in technology, but from an emerging economy, that's different from somebody who maybe in this economy, but doesn't have the general skills to succeed. I'm glad you mentioned social capital because one of the most frustrating things to me as an economist thinking about these problems is how little we know about changes in social capital. So very eminent political scientist Robert Putnam has written a series of books on this. So we seem to know it when we see it, but we can't really design it. So we can look back at times where social capital appeared to be high, but if we were to ask, what are the lessons from that period for today? It's a little bit hard as I read that work. So yes, social capital and rebuilding it would be great. I'm just not sure we have a quick way to do that. You've written about foreign aid before. Are there insights that we can take from the foreign aid literature that would help us to repair some of these communities? Yeah, in fact, that was part of the connection of my interest here. When I wrote The Aid Trap with a colleague named Bill Duggan, we had the view that foreign aid, at least practiced by the U.S. and most European economies, was very top-down and government-directed. And the metaphor we used in the book, which is the part of the story I'll use to get to your question, was the Marshall Plan. Mm -hmm. And while the Marshall Plan is often viewed by the public, and certainly by most politicians, 
as being about government to government. That wasn't what it was. The Marshall Plan had made loans available to businesses in European economies who would repay their governments to get dollars. And the idea that if you go back and read Marshall's speech at Harvard was all about the productivity problem that he was trying to solve with it. So fast forward here, we need to think in a more decentralized way. So just as you can't imagine a one-size-fits-all foreign aid, the notion that President Biden or a Republican president could stand up and say, I have this one idea, and we're going to pour a lot of money in this one idea, and it's going to fix opportunity in America. It's not how it works any more than it would have for the Marshall Plan or foreign aid, which is why building bridges can seem hard, because I can't tell you there's one thing. If we only did that one thing, we'd be there. That's not how it works. But it is, I think, a metaphor for the value of decentralization, the value of the engagement of both the public and the private sectors. Those were emblematic of the success of the Marshall Plan and of the failure of much of contemporary foreign aid. Now, you said that economists focus a lot on GDP. Is there an alternative way to measure what we might think of as subjective well-being that you think makes sense? You also contrast the focus on consumers with producers. I was looking through an old issue of Look Magazine from 1967, just happened to stumble across it. And it's all these ads for things like hammers and alarm clocks and adhesives and stuff like this. And I was looking at the prices and I was like, wow, these look similar to the prices that I get on Amazon right now. I and mean, this was 50 years ago. And so there's no denying the incredible reduction in the cost of growing up as a kid, if you had like a hammer, we would carry the hammer from place to place. And now if I have to spend more than an hour looking for it, I just order a new one on Amazon. But people don't seem to feel wealthier than their parents or their grandparents. I think it depends what you mean by wealthier. So we actually are wealthier, most people. If you look at everything from the way in which we live to the kinds of goods and services that we use, they would have been unimaginable. You know, I grew up in Florida and I'm much older than my students, but I'm not ancient. And we didn't have air conditioning. And that was in Florida. And my guess is people of very modest means in Florida today do have air conditioning. And so there are changes that are more subtle, but I think that's not what's accounting for the American psyche. I think when people point to how well off, if you want to tell the positive story or not well off materially, I think it's an uncertainty about opportunity and wanting to know that the social contract has my back, that I get to play. When Ned Phelps, my colleague I mentioned earlier, talks about this in a very felicitous phrase, I think, of mass flourishing. Mm -hmm. When I go back to the classical thinkers like Smith, and most of my book is really a love letter to Adam Smith, I think Smith, the moral philosopher, had in mind an all-in society. And most conservatives use that to mean I, Glenn Hubbard, or you, Gregory LeBlanc, could be all in. We're mm -hmm. going to be an entrepreneur or whatever. But another version of all in is all in. And I think Smith's view was a healthy society, was a mass participation society. That was actually the part of the theme of the wealth of nations, that the wealth of a nation was average people's ability to consume. It wasn't sovereign stacks of gold. I think that's the point. When we talk about it, so it's not so much a matter of do we need a new GDP as how do we make sure that we have that kind of all-in society? You said the last time people felt like they were all-in was World War II. And 
this coronavirus crisis seemed like it was an opportunity for people to all, look, there's a common enemy. <laughs> we all want to be healthy and so forth, but it didn't materialize. There was no sense of all in. If anything, some of the differences became even more stark. I agree. I mean, when I thought about the World War II, it was actually a conversation I mentioned in the book. I was at a conference at Yale Law School and Bob Schiller, who's a Nobel laureate in our profession, gave a dinner talk where he talked about the last generation to be so engaged was World War II, and he just stopped the speech. And I was like, holy moly, is Bob saying that we need another world war to do it? <laughs> well, so we kind of had right. one. The last, I mean, if you look at the delta on our national debt, it's probably... Yeah, yeah. We're up now to roughly where it's a fraction of GDP. We are about where we were at the end of World War II, except we didn't just fight World War II. So it's definitely it's definitely a concern. I argue in the book there are other ways short of World War II or COVID to do this. One idea that I mention is thinking harder about national service. Going back to the idea that part of the problem is noticing and bringing people together. By national service, I don't mean compulsory military service. It could be a number of things that constitute national service. But I think it's a conversation we need to have. Every American regardless of where you come from, regardless of how much money your parents have, needs to be engaged in national service. I agree with your point about noticing in a variety of ways. But you also talk about in the book Balance, you say that when there's bad policy, it's usually not because policymakers are ignorant about the bad impact of the policies. They're smart people and they have exposure to lots of smart advisors. And so it's usually something else, right? It's not about ignorance. We like to think as economists and well, academics that if you just educate people, right, then, you know, you'll get better results. Part of it is still that. Noticing is still a problem. And I think economists and certainly politicians could do better at it. But yeah, part of the point that Tim Kaine and I raised in our book Balance is rent-seeking is an extremely important problem. Lancer Olson, you mentioned earlier, other economists have focused on this for decades. Most great societies rot from the inside, not from military misadventure. And so this is something that politicians understand all too well. The question is, how do we make sure that both the political marketplace and the marketplace for commerce, finance, and so on are competitive enough that you don't have this sclerosis and rent-seeking? So now, in terms of all-in, there are some folks who are advocating universal basic income, sort of a cushion of safety. And it's not just people on the left. Milton Friedman was also an advocate of this. What's wrong with that? And why should we think in a more targeted way when it comes to building bridges? It's a, actually a very interesting question. And you're right. It doesn't have a particular left-right pedigree to it. A number of people on both sides of the aisle in politics have also suggested it. I don't think it's the right answer for the problem that I think we ought to be solving. So going back to the classical economist's view of what a healthy economy and a healthy society is, people ought to be engaged in it. So when Phelps talks about mass flourishing, or I talk in the book about an, a participation society, an all-in society, it really refers to work. And it doesn't mean that it's just because I'm a Presbyterian, I'm a Calvinist, and I love work. It's partly that, maybe. But I think it's more the idea that people can't be engaged if they're not in for two reasons. One is simple. 
that I can't be higher up on the ladder of skills and success if I'm not on the ladder to begin with. So I can't sort of stay by myself for a while and then jump up to a mid or upper level job. That's not the way the labor market works. But more important is the feeling that people get from engagement. So if you go back to the social pathologies discussion that we had, part of that is from a lack of economic participation. It's not necessarily from a lack of income. There aren't transfers to people. So it's not that they're starving. It's that they're not participating. And I think the proponents of UBI, I've said this to more than one tech executive, you feel valued, you want to go to work, you want to participate. How can you look at somebody else and say, well, you know, you just don't have any skills that are worth participating in the economy, so we're just going to give you basic income. If we're talking about a lack of dignity and participation, I think it's the wrong answer. With respect to Milton Friedman and others, they were seeing a solution to a different problem of just how do you more efficiently give out government benefit? That was really Friedman's idea for a negative income tax. But I don't think it's really the problem we're faced with today. I think the problem we're faced with today is this lack of participation. And I think it's the wrong answer to that question. Yeah, because in the book Wall and Bridge, you seem to advocate for more social insurance. In the book Balance, you say, you know, we have a proliferation of entitlements. So can we do smart social insurance? And yeah. I think one of the interesting insights in the book is about how unemployment insurance was really designed to solve a, a different problem, which is about business cycles, right? Very different problem. The unemployment insurance in this country was designed in the 1930s, and its goal was temporary layoffs. So I work at a steel plant, and I get laid off in a business cycle downturn, I'm going to come right back to work when the economy comes back. It works well for that kind of economic fluctuation, but increasingly, Many Americans are exposed to something else. The economy, macro economy, may come back, but my job, my industry, may not. And unemployment insurance just isn't the answer to that question. There are things that are the answer to that question, but they're not UI, and we need to think about it. And by the way, the costs of the kinds of social insurance reforms I mentioned in the book aren't trivial, Pache, my conversation with Hank Paulson, but nor are they anywhere near the size of the funds we're spending on older Americans through Social Security, through Medicare, and some aspects of the Medicaid program. So as a country, we have to ask ourselves about choices and opportunity. And in the book, everything I describe, I also describe ways we would pay for it. I think part of it can be through tax increases, which is part of the compensation metaphor. Particularly, I suggest a cash flow tax, so companies that have earned a lot in profits would pay. But I think we also have to reduce our social spending on the well-to-do. There's really no reason we should be operating such generous social insurance programs for well-to-do America. So at some point, we have to make those choices. If we think about retraining, let's say, as a potential bridge, if this is too centralized... You don't want that. Yeah, there can be people who think, oh yeah, here are the skills that we need. I remember I was involved in the founding of a education company that was all about teaching people who become software engineers. And, you know, the belief was that this is the factory job of the future. But now we're seeing that there's a lot of software engineers, but a lot of that's going to be automated. And we probably need some construction people. Maybe there's some construction, electrician, plumbing, healthcare. There are lots of those jobs. And Whenever I hear, as I point out in the book, people make an argument that such and such is a good job and we need Washington to protect those. I always say to people like that, when I talk to my students, many of the jobs they want didn't even exist 
right. when I was a student. And so the notion that some ossified bureaucracy defines good jobs as manufacturing or anything else, I don't think that makes any sense. So we need training that's more individualized. I describe a mechanism through personal reemployment accounts to do that. But I don't think we have a one-size-fits-all, either a one-program-fits-all or a one-size-fits-all thinking that every part of our economy has the same needs, because it doesn't. If you go to different regions of the country, you'll find different skill imbalances mm -hmm. in the labor market. And there's a lot to be gained from talking to local business people, local university leaders. Now, what's the role of corporations? I know you dig deep into this in the book, but the example of George Eastman and the Kodak company, and they were basically, Rochester was like a company town. And if you have a company town, then there's no conflict between profit maximization and helping the community. But nowadays, we've got all these folks switching jobs every year. And so the investment in human capital formation, one would think, would be because the company's Employees are just going to get up and leave. But there, but we, these are problems we know how to address in economics. So a small answer and then a bigger answer to your great question. The small answer is, if you and I were each running a plant training workers, if I spend a lot training my workers, you could say, great, that Glenn did that because I'll just hire them and Glenn ate the training cost. And I'd be doing that to you. But we know how to solve those problems in the same way R&D has spillovers and we subsidize it. And we could do that. But I think an even bigger point to your question is many business people think that there's enormous and widespread support for business in the system. And so we can just tinker around the edges and ignore the social support. But we started our conversation with the idea that it was a neoliberal conceit, if you were, that efficiency is the goal because public policy just deals with all the rest. So let's just focus where it matters. And if the world really worked that way, that's a fine way to look at it. It just doesn't for the reasons I've been talking about with you. So I, I do think business leaders have to step outside their comfort zone a little. I don't think social support is given. And I do think they have to think of themselves as somewhere, as not anywhere. If you imagine a group of people, and some of them could be anywhere. You know, I'm a business executive. I could be here. I could be in some other country. I could be any company. And many people are somewhere. They're rooted to a particular industry or a set of skills or a place where they live. We can't run the economy only for the anywheres. It has to be for the somewheres too. And I think that's a bit of what business people are missing. But wouldn't it also adjust on wage? If I'm offering you as a recruitment strategy, if I'm offering you skill formation and enhancement of employment opportunities, then wouldn't that mean I can pay you less if I bundle that with your compensation? It could well be. They're excellent examples. Some of these, when I teach business and society in the MBA program, I use examples, for example, of Walmart's major mm -hmm. investment in skill training. They realized that Amazon was cleaning their clock in some ways. They didn't have the employees they needed. And so they made massive investments. I think they described it as social responsibility. I'm sure it's partly that, but partly it was they just realized, hey, we need to do this. And I think more business people need to look at their employees, their associates as an integral part of what they do and that training can be meaningful. And if there are these inefficiencies from spillovers, we could talk about public policy, but I'm not persuaded that business people are anywhere near the frontier at what they could be doing, let putting aside public policy. Given that mobility out of these towns, say in the Midwest and so forth, has gone down, this would presumably make them more attractive for this reason. If you go to a Youngstown and you train up all these people, they're presumably less likely to leave than they would have been in the past, right? No, exactly. But 
Part of the concern is that many economic development authorities in parts of the country view their mission as bringing back the legacy industries, as opposed to saying, what could we be doing? So, for example, Youngstown sits between Cleveland and Pittsburgh. Could it be more of a business meeting hub? Could it have more care homes? I can think of lots of ideas that aren't bringing back steel to Youngstown. So I think a lot of it depends on, are you going to be more like Pittsburgh, where people were willing to start with a blank slate and say, what could we be? The more politicians and local development authorities say, let's do what we can to bring the next steel plant, that's really not getting them out of the box. One of the things that I've always wondered in recent years is, have, have people given up on politics? If you look at, say, global warming, everyone I know is saying, vote your shares this way and uh, buy your products this way. And yet no one's saying, let's vote for a carbon tax, right? I don't understand who's opposing it. If BP and Shell and Exxon are out there bragging about how green they are, then wait, are they lobbying against the carbon tax then? I can't completely understand this. If I could, I'd be a political scientist. But I have, like many economists, I've long advocated a carbon tax. At one level, this isn't a hard problem. We have an externality. We know how to fix those. The exact way to set it, I'm not saying it's trivial, but we definitely need that. We know how to do this. I'm not sure that it's going to happen in the United States, at least in the time frame I would consider. And I think we are making a lot of progress on the cost of renewables. I think we are making that progress and we're making progress on technology. So I think we have to, unfortunately, go to a second best idea. One of the things I worry about, though, is in the so-called Inflation Reduction Act, which was largely a, a set of policies aimed at these sorts of subsidies, A lot of them were an econ speak in for marginal. They were just handouts for things business was doing anyway. Again, we know how to solve that problem. We have R&D tax credits that were done for incremental R&D. So I think there are ways we can think harder about this. And we as economists need to step into this fray. We can't just say, if you don't do the carbon tax, then just sit on your hands because that's not very productive. We may not do the carbon tax, but we still have climate change. Mm -hmm. So I think we need to re-engage. We were talking before we started the recording about how Columbia is well known for its great books program at the undergraduate level. You're a former dean of a business school, and you've sat on top of the curriculum development process. Should we have something? I mean, you say this book is almost like a love letter to Adam Smith. After the financial crisis, I had called colleagues together and said, don't tell me our answers to put Lehman Brothers cases in the MBA program. I'm happy to do that, but that's not the solution to the financial crisis. When I looked at the financial crisis, I thought of, not too dissimilar to the Queen of England's question, that we weren't connecting dots that were right in front of our face. So we focus more on that, more integrated teaching, we in probably most top business schools. But here, I think we need to look back to great thinkers in political economy. I now teach a class in the MBA program, new to me, after I stepped out as dean. I stepped out of my finance comfort zone and said, I want to teach political economy. I want to bring Adam Smith to the MBA students. And importantly, while they've heard of Smith and Marx, let's say, I wanted to bring people like Karl Polanyi Mm -hmm. to them. They've all heard of Hayek, although they don't necessarily know much about Hayek. They know the name. But I said, look, in the same year that Hayek's famous book, The Road to Serfdom, was serialized by Reader's Digest, Polanyi is writing this wonderful book called The Great Transformation, which speaks to our time. He didn't have DeWitt Wallace wanting to serialize it in Reader's Digest, so people didn't read it. But Polanyi tells us there's something in between markets and the state, and markets can't solve every kind of transaction. So back to this 
need to nurture people and places. Polanyi was really all over that. So I think all of these thinkers, Keynes, Stigler, Malthus, and Ricardo, I think there's just much that they have to say to practical business problems. So what I try to do is talk about what these folks brought to the intellectual marketplace, but then also talk about contemporary problems, globalization, populism, inequality. What did these folks have to say about it and how might it affect us? So just as undergraduates probably ought to read things that were published before 1990, so too should business people. At the end of the book, Balance, right, I mean, you end it with a chapter on California and also a chapter on the U.S. And after going through the rise and fall of so many empires, you were a bit pessimistic, I think. And this was 2013, I think, when you wrote the book. California did get better, yeah. but it's now slipping a little bit, too. So I, I'm not sure whether I'll be right or wrong. But yes, it did improve after that. But all of the trends that you're emphasizing in terms of debt overhang and so forth, they seem to have gotten worse. But in the book, Wall on the Bridge, it seems like you've still got some optimism. So are you more optimistic or more pessimistic? And this, remember, the book was written before the Trump election, before Brexit, before all these other things. I'm, a, I'm always an optimist. So asking me that question won't reveal much other than a fixed effect that I'm always <laughs> optimistic. But part of the reason is, back to Smith or Hayek, I feel that individual entrepreneurs, I feel that markets and the market for ideas has great capacity to solve our problems. Where we trip over ourselves is where we don't notice consequences mm -hmm. of things. But I think a perfectly alert group of economists, business people, public policymakers, citizens, real people as well as economists can make this work. Glenn, thanks so much for joining me. I really appreciate it. The most recent book is called The Wall and the bridge, but of course, don't forget the aid trap, don't forget balance, and if you're like me, don't forget to buy some textbooks and read them at your leisure. So hope to see you again soon. Thank you for tuning in to the Unsiloed Podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, please give us a five-star rating and review. To listen to other episodes, please visit our website at www.unsiloedpodcast.com.